Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Four years ago, in 2015, the world adopted the Sustainable Development Goals. These are 17 goals around improving health, welfare, and the environment that members of the United Nations agreed to achieve by 2030. The SDGs, as they are known, built upon a previous set of global goals called the Millennium Development Goals, which expired in 2015. Now, the idea behind the SDGs was to create an ambitious but achievable set of quantifiable targets around which governments, civil society groups, and the UN itself can organize their development and environmental policies. These targets include things like eliminating extreme poverty as defined by people who live on less than $1.25 a day, reduce maternal mortality to less than 70 per 100,000 live births, end the AIDS epidemic, significantly reduce ocean acidification as measured by pH level. You get the drift. In all, there are 162 targets built around these 17 goals to be achieved by 2030. This week at the United Nations, there is a major meeting called the High-Level Political Forum on the SDGs, in which top government officials and civil society organizations participate in a stock-taking of where we stand in terms of progress on these goals. A number of foreign ministers and other officials are in New York to discuss progress or lack thereof on the SDGs, so I thought this might be a good moment to have a conversation that examines where the world stands four years into the Sustainable Development Goals. On the line with me to discuss progress on the SDGs and how four years into the project, the SDGs are affecting global affairs and international relations is John MacArthur. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a senior advisor to the UN Foundation. And we have a pretty wide-ranging conversation that discusses not just what SDGs are making progress and which are not, though we do discuss that, but also how the SDGs have changed how the world is thinking about, talking about, and acting on global development and sustainability issues. I think this conversation is both a good introduction to and also a good stock taking of the SDGs four years in. I think you'll enjoy. A quick note before we start the bonus episode I posted this week for premium subscribers is one of my favorite of all times. It's my conversation with the journalist Robin Wright. She's a legendary foreign affairs journalist with The New Yorker and many other publications. And she discusses just some great and sometimes harrowing stories from her career, including a near death experience she had in Angola and the time that Muhammad Ali wrote her a poem while she was covering the famous Rumble in the Jungle bout. It's a great conversation available to premium subscribers. Go to patreon.com slash global dispatches to unlock that episode. You can also follow the links on the description field of this podcast episode or just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Got nearly 20 bonus episodes posted by now and you can also unlock access to 
my global news clips service, Don's Digest, which is this hand-curated clips service that I send out every weekday morning to subscribers, mostly people who work in the global development and humanitarian space, but it's a useful resource for global news junkies of all stripes. All right, now here is my conversation with John MacArthur of the United Nations Foundation and the Brookings Institution. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I was in London, actually, earlier this week, and a very funny evening where I was having dinner with a friend, and we're a bunch of people there, and a friend was talking about what people do for a living and mentioned that I uh, work on these things, the Sustainable Development Goals. And his eight-year-old son said... Huh, I know what those are. We're learning about those in school. And my friend said, Oh, well, what are you calling them? And he said, The Sustainable Development Goals. And the eight year old said, Yeah, we're learning about the goal for water. I said, Oh, that's interesting. And they were doing projects in school. And of course, as someone who works on these issues at a more technocratic level, I was only heartened that young people are learning about them. But then after dinner, I got on the subway in London, the tube. And I was uh, looking on my phone, reading the news or something. And I looked up and across from me uh, on the other side of the subway was a woman, probably if I had to guess uh, in her early 60s. And I noticed on her lapel, she had a sustainable development goal pin, Mm. a very nice shiny one I'd never seen before. And these two totally serendipitous things reflecting two people of totally different generations who were obviously caring and learning and, uh, in a sense, espousing the message of the Sustainable Development Goals was right there in front of me. And I said to myself, you know, we are getting the message out around what these goals are. It's a pretty broad uh, diffusion and sections of society. Even if it's not complete, it might not be front pages every day. There's a lot of diffusion happening. And I consider that actually, if I take stock, one of the better parts of what's going on, there's a flip side to it, which is I don't think we're doing well enough on the policy side, but there is a good news story in terms of people learning about this in very different walks of life, very far from the UN. That's interesting. So so like the awareness raising campaigns that sometimes get get criticized by the wonky policy people uh, are actually having an an impact. I'm thinking here, you're giving the... uh, the British example of like Richard Curtis, the director yeah. of all those and the writer of all those like 90s Hugh Grant movies, uh, exactly. is, is the, uh, you know, an ambassador for spreading the message about uh, the sustainable development goals. And, and it seems to have worked. Well, and even I was hearing yesterday about a psychiatrist in California who was giving a talk and had uh, received a SDG pin from a, a healthcare CEO and was going to wear the pin in their next upcoming keynote speech in a medical conference. Uh, 
you know, and so it's not just in the UK, it's all these very diffuse places. And I was very involved in the Millennium Development Goals and getting helping to get them off the ground in the early 2000s. And if you compare to, say, mid-2004, we were nowhere near as far along in terms of the breadth of outreach and different, whether it's businesses or school children or others, uh, getting to understand what this is all about. And I think it's interesting because... Part of it is about public awareness, and this is all about what can publics do. Uh, but also, you never know, and I, I actually do know of stories, even from the MDGs. I know one in particular that comes to mind where a young girl came home from school and you know, was speaking to their parents and said, you know, mommy and daddy, what are you guys doing for the Millennium Development Goal on maternal health? And it just so happened that the parents were very senior policy figures globally who hadn't been so convinced about whether the MDGs mattered, but then they heard it from their child going to school. And they said, huh, that actually is like full circle. I, this might be a really useful tool. Uh, and so it's not always just about the first order effect. It's about how these norms diffuse over time and create a sense of a common reference point mm. for what the world's trying to achieve. So that's interesting. This is like farther down in my list of my list of, of things I wanted to talk to you about, but um, it, it seems relevant now that, you know, one of, I think the assumptions when the SDGs were, were being created is that, you know, it would help shape national policies in sort of yeah. some interesting and, and meaningful ways. Like, countries themselves would adopt the SDGs and you know, shape their bureaucracy in either meaningful or small ways around the SDGs. And yep. I recently was in Ghana and I saw sort of an example of that, uh, you know, up close and personal, um, where uh, I met an official who was working at the Ghana Census Bureau or Statistics Office. And, you know, yep. his job title had, you know, coordinator for the SDGs, you know, directly in his job title. So, yeah. you know, it, it seems that both at like the public awareness level, um, we seem to be making some progress there, but also in the nitty gritty, you know, how one reshapes a bureaucracy in advance or to support sustainable development seems to be happening as well in some actually like meaningful ways. Well, and there I'm actually a little more cautious in my interpretation, because I think we cannot be uh, overly celebratory in terms of how our public institutions are doing globally. I think we have a long ways to go still. I think partly that's because people are still figuring out what do these goals really mean. And there are some realms, I would say, in the world of global health, for example, uh, you know, as a set of professional communities uh, and researchers and academics and policymakers and politicians, people have spent almost 20 years arguing over how to achieve outcome goals and gotten pretty good at organizing the debates on how to get there. We like how to, how to like get to like, you know, reduce AIDS and, and yeah, or how malaria, to eliminate AIDS, eliminate, AIDS like, eliminate malaria, that sort of thing. Yeah. There's been a whole, I would call it a cascade effect, like from one goal to the next and learning by doing and improving all the processes and the academic debates have informed what's good and what's bad. And, you know, very intensive processes. Whereas if you look at other issues like protecting the oceans, you know, I think the world is still in pretty early stages of thinking about how to make sure we don't just, you know, achieve the target that was set of 10% ocean conservation for 2020. But gosh, we don't even have a target for 2030. What, what should this be? And so we've got a whole new way to think about not just governing what goes on top of the ocean, the ships, 
but what lives in the ocean, which by the way is 70% of the planet. <laughs> so we're, we're at different stages of, I would say, global policy sophistication, even in our institutions and in our debates and tackling the essence of each of the, for lack of a better phrase, uh, 17 problems that I mean, these goals articulate. Do you think that is a function of where the money has been spent up to this point? I mean, for example, like the Gates Foundation has poured a lot of money into global health issues, which you just yeah. said are like, you know, where the you know more sophisticated analytics and, and policies and more successful policies, I suppose, are, are being implemented, but maybe other areas uh, sort of had not received that kind of funding. Is, is it like mostly a function of, of where the money has been? I don't think so, because I think the money shows up in different places for different reasons, and that changes over time. So why did so much money show up for health in the past 20 years? It you know, roughly tripled globally, uh, but not so much for food and agriculture or not so much uh, of a boost for education. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I think matters of life and death, uh, people can get their head around pretty quickly. Uh, politicians can get their head around pretty quickly. We had a huge boost of attention uh, in the early 2000s around you know, the pandemic of AIDS, really waking people up to how bad a situation can get. And that led to a whole sequence of, of other problems getting more attention. But on things like uh, you know, income, you know, what's the right amount of income? It's not so binary as life and death. And so we don't have as many people uh, with as much clarity around what's the thing to invest in and in, say ending extreme poverty. And that's where to put the, you know, the onus at the other end of the spectrum, we have some interesting new, I would call them factoids coming out where there's a thing, the world poverty clock, which is I think a pioneering effort. Some colleagues uh, of mine have been working on to say at every moment, you can go online and say approximately how many people are living in extreme poverty, so-called $1.90 a day poverty. And as of roughly May of this year, it's below 600 million people. Uh, and that's actually not in the official statistics. These are a bunch of academics working to you know, use the latest available data to get the much more precise estimates. What's, what's the closest we can say? Where is it getting worse? Where is it getting better? And it adds a degree of specificity that is remarkable. And by the way, I, I did some back of the envelope math and it's the first time in probably 300 years since around 1720 that we have less than 600 million people living in extreme poverty around the world. What, what's like your back of the envelope uh, percentage of the world population? Because I know like in it's 1990, a, it was like over 35%. Now it's down to about 8%. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we, of course, uh, it was about 90% of the world in 1720, but now it's down to about 8%, but it's actually a smaller absolute number of people for the first time, but also a much smaller share of the world. But one of the things we can also see is that, you know, Nigeria, for example, as of probably last year, now has the largest number of people living in extreme poverty. It's overtaken India, which has had a decline. We published a paper last year where we estimated that, uh, Probably half the world's extreme poverty will be concentrated in just five countries in 2030. And so this actually means that we can get on what is so-called first among equals of the sustainable development goals and extreme poverty by 2030. We actually have a very specific number of people in a specific number of places facing a very specific problem. And as much as this diffusion of the concepts that we were talking about earlier, I think have been a 
a pretty good success in a world that's having trouble agreeing on anything right now. I don't think we're yet specific enough in thinking through, huh, we've got these five countries that are going to be responsible for half the problem. What's the world's answer to help those five countries get rid of at least their problem? Because if we can't answer that question, we can't answer the question. And I think we need to be asking our institutions. So we have, for example, the World Bank's uh, IDA, the, the concessional grant making body that's like the part of the World Bank that supports the poorest countries. It's getting a replenishment this year. So there's a question. Uh, what is IDA going to be doing over the next few years to make sure that these countries that it works with have a chance to end extreme poverty by 2030 or, or at least what are the scenarios that could conceivably answer that question? It has to be much more specific in order for these goals to be really meaningful. So I have to imagine, though, that you know, you're able to sort of get kind of specific because you seem to have pretty good data on that specific point of, of extreme poverty and, and sort of yep. where people are. Uh, I have to imagine, though, that, you know, among the 17 goals that there are a number of them that just don't have that same kind of quality data that could drive interventions. Can you just sort of talk about some of the challenges, you know, four years in we've seen towards, you know, collecting data, knowing what indicators work, what what indices yeah. are, are measurable, what is not, um, you know, if there are any like examples or stories you can tell to illustrate how, you know, the lack of quality data is 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 affecting policy discourse right now. Oh, you're, you're opening up some of my favorite baskets of issues. Thank you, Mark. Oh, no, <laughs> you're, you're welcome, John. <laughs> um, I would make a few points here. First, there are some issues where we do have pretty good data, child mortality, extreme poverty, uh, more and more geospatial data. The satellite data can tell us so much now about agricultural yields around the world. And it's important to recognize, even on the issues where we have pretty good data, we're not acting upon it specifically enough. For child mortality, we estimate that about 9 million children's lives are at stake. And by the way, half of those country, half of those lives are at stake in just three countries. So my first what country, uh, I believe if, if I remember correctly, it's uh, Nigeria is certainly number one. I think Pakistan and I believe DRC, Democratic mm -hmm. Republic of Congo. And uh, there are certain. The first two are, I'm certainly there, the third, I'd have to double check. <laughs> but the, um, it, base, it depends on what latest data estimates come out. But it's very concentrated, and we have to be answering those questions when we have the data already. Then there's a second bucket of issues, which is uh, areas where we have you know, okay data, and we did, a, a, again, another study last year where we looked at how many uh, how many of the people-focused sustainable development goal indicators have trend data for at least 100 countries? And it was roughly uh, 25 indicators had good data for that. And these were across different issues from, uh, you know, homicide to, uh, you know, the infectious disease to poverty, hunger, education, and so forth. So there's a lot of uh, pretty good data, 100 out of 193 countries, at least at a minimum. And so on those, we need to make sure that the data gaps aren't inhibiting action either. But then you're exactly right. There's a bunch of things where we don't even have the data. 
and we don't have good data. And even certain things like maternal mortality is often a highly estimated uh, variable. We have issues like hunger, where there's a lot of technical issues into that go into measuring hunger, but we need to have what uh, the academics would call confidence intervals to know just how how strong are or how confident are we in the numbers that, that the world's putting out in terms of how many people are actually chronically undernourished. But we also have a bunch of things where we just can't even say what's going on, and we need to be picking some top priorities. And we have a lot of issues where people aren't even getting their births registered still, which is the ultimate form of no one getting left behind. They're literally not even counted as existing in society. And how can that happen in a world of cell phones in every corner of the planet? And so those are the issues where we need to think about, in my view, 2019, 2020, 2021, a very rapid kind of last chance benchmarking moment in order to say, here are the top 10 or 20 indicators uh, that we're going to measure in all countries. And I've suggested uh, last year that the G20, for example, has about 85% of the world's population. If the G20 alone were to say, we're going to pick 20 indicators in 2020, where our 20 countries are going to say, here's how many people are going to are getting left behind on each issue. Then we can at least have an honest conversation at the 2030 saying, huh, we, well, we at least said, uh, here's the starting line. Uh, and so we need to do much better on that. So, so, so you're, what you're saying basically is that these next couple of years are probably the last opportunity, the last moment to get that sort of baseline data right. For a lot of these other things, yeah, because what are we going to do? Say in 2025, let's like measure the last couple of years and then figure out how we did. I mean, that's not, can't be right. Unless it's some measure like there's a bunch of targets that are absolute, like end extreme poverty. In, in technical terms, you don't actually need to know how you were doing in 2020 in order to know how you've done in 2030. Because if it's zero, it's in 2030, it's zero in 2030. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, but, like a 10% decline. You know, right. Yeah, there are a bunch of targets like that. that are proportionate declines. Like there's a non-communicable disease target to cut by one third everywhere. Okay, well, then you got to know the starting point. Uh, what's your diabetes rate? Uh, you know, what's your cardiovascular disease? All these problems, uh, which every country can measure. But that the reason I put out these different buckets is that, in my view, too many people say, oh, there's all these things that aren't measured well, and then they don't pay attention to the things that already are <laughs> that need action and specific action. Hmm. But then there's a bunch of things that could be measured very quickly. So let's not try to boil the ocean of measuring everything. Let's at least pick the most important things next and get that done pretty much immediately so again, we can add that honest conversation. So I guess just kind of taking a, a step back here, we're, we're now four years into the sustainable development goals due in, in 2030. I mean, like, how are we doing? Like, what's your, your sort of gut reaction to just like the most basic question? What does progress so far look like? Well, one of the tricks of that question is there are so many issues in so many countries around the world, because this is a universal agenda for all countries, that what that question is really asking is, how's the world doing? How's the world doing as a world? And that depends on what you see, or what you choose to look at. And 
what, what you might see based on where you live or what the issues are that you care about most. So in my view, there is no single answer to how a world of seven and a half billion people is doing because it's just too complicated. So what the goals do for me is they give us a chance to get everyone on the same page, literally and figuratively, to see, ha, huh, I see this problem over here. You see that problem over there. Let's see how those connect or don't. And so all, all that's to say, you know, if we look at extreme poverty, for example, as one big issue, we're doing better than we've ever done before. But the latest estimates are that we're on track to get down to maybe four or 500 million people in extreme poverty by 2030. The rate of progress is actually slowing down. That's the best the world will have, uh, in proportionate terms, ever done. But it's not the commitment. The commitment is to get it down to zero. So we're falling short. If we look at other issues like uh, you know, climate change, and I would say many of the global environmental issues ranging from air pollution, uh, ocean management, uh, carbon emissions, we're doing pretty badly across the board. And most things are going in the wrong direction still, and we haven't turned the super tanker around to go in the right direction. And that's because our economies aren't yet wired to, to decouple economic progress from environmental pain. Well, adequately. Well, 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 let me maybe put the, the, that question to you a different way then. And, yeah. and I, I appreciate that answer. But what would you say has been or has there been any significant sort of political consequence of the fact that the SDGs were, you know, invented and approved at the UN in 2015? In these last four years, what has been sort of a key political consequence of just the fact that we now have SDGs? I'll give you my parochially favorite consequence, which I'm Canadian. And in Canada, uh, there's been over time a much more serious conversation about how all the different issues fit together. So to the extent that last year, the country presented its first uh, voluntary national review, the kind of UN peer review process. But when they did so, they said, gosh, we've, we've realized that we have all these things we're trying to do across all of our 30 members of cabinet and all our different departments and all this. But we've really just started in the self-diagnosis of what this is. And then after that, for the very first time, the country actually set its national poverty line. And even Canada didn't have an official national poverty line and incorporated, not by coincidence, the commitment to cut the domestic poverty rate by half by 2030. And then it, it came out uh, earlier this year, Statistics Canada released uh, some data showing that for the first time in uh, probably at least a generation, there had been a major dent in the poverty rate, especially for child poverty, due to some policies the government had initiated. And it's for the first time uh, a chance to see how Canada could actually cut its domestic poverty rate by half. And it's also very importantly, there's these very important nuggets buried in this, in this agenda. One of the other favorite things I saw is that the uh, favorite, it's not quite the right word for reasons that'll make sense in a sec, but that one of the deep problems that Canada is dealing with is reconciliation uh, for Indigenous people. And there's been a whole Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, you know, 
centuries of injustice that the society is trying to come to terms with. It's going to take a long, long time to chart a new course. But one of the things that's interesting is there's been a, a fiscal agreement on a new relationship between the federal government and indigenous communities. And in that uh, early kind of draft agreement for a new fiscal relationship between the federal government and the First Nations, it was agreed that the sustainable development goals would be seen as uh, a framework for evaluating progress on how everyone's doing. And in my best estimate, the reason that, that the sustainable development goals work in that regard or could work is that there weren't any sides a set of benchmarks. There were the benchmarks that all 193 countries had agreed were pretty reasonable set of benchmarks. And so even the most difficult, again, centuries long mm -hmm. challenge of how does the government of Canada work with indigenous people, the goals provided a tool for a new type of discussion on how to how do we assess progress and what we're aiming for in a neutral way. And I think we've seen more and more of those types of uh, new conversations take shape. Similar to, and then if we look at the private sector, we've seen more and more companies say, we don't just want to, uh, you know, do good work. We actually want to think about what share of the world's progress are we contributing to or what share of the world's problem are we contributing to? And these goals are more than a logo. They're actually a set of outcomes. So you have a whole global movement around how to benchmark uh, companies' contributions or investors' contributions to the SDGs. These are things that I think if it had been one side's goals or another side's goals uh, that were seen as representing uh, an institutional agenda as opposed to the world's agenda, we wouldn't have seen these seeds of progress. And again, I'm very sober. We're not, we haven't solved these problems, but I see these as seeds of progress for a better way to solve problems. Uh, well, John, thank you so much for your time, and and yeah, love love the Canada anecdotes as well. As as a Canadian citizen myself, I, there I, we I go. It. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for all you do. See ya. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to John MacArthur. That was helpful. As always, I love having these kind of uh, somewhat regular, almost annual uh, updates on the SDGs with John. He's always a great wealth of knowledge when it comes to both analyzing progress on these goals, but also kind of putting these questions into sort of broader political and geopolitical perspectives. All right. We will see you next time. Bye.